We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and Beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. I think that the thing that is intellectually dishonest about that, if you're like, you're kind of like pro tech generally, but then like you don't like crypto, is you just don't have a sector that has um, the ability to kind of like create its own money and then derivatives and all these other kind of remixable financial components and move at the speed of the internet. And I also just think it's like crypto speed running. It's, it's the actual last recent invention. It's like a fundamentally new thing that hasn't had that much time to like bake. There's a, it's funny, Antonio is at this crypto dinner and uh, a few people are trying to shame him to leave so he can, so he can join us. And I was telling him, oh, we're doing Mama Zen, tell him to come, to come join us. Um, but I think we got a good, uh, good agenda. So let's, um, shall we get to it? Maybe let's start with a uh, congratulations. You guys just had a big, uh, a big, big announcement, big launch. Um, let, let's talk about it. It's kind of interesting. Um, I said, maybe this is a little inside baseball, but basically I just like, tweet anything as an announcement because <laughs> creating marketing and like, yeah. it works. Um, but I think like, yeah, it's significant in the sense that Farcaster to date has been a beta. And so now we're, we're kind of moving to the big leagues in the sense that it'll be live and uh, soon to be 100% permissionless. And I think that's important because we're not just building a, a social network. We're trying to build a protocol. And I think the core part of the protocol is the underlying data and APIs are completely permissionless. You can sign up and use it without having to talk to anyone. Uh, I think that that was the original goal and that's that's where we're headed. And, and I think optimism will be an important part of like making that work for Farcaster. And for those on the show who don't know what optimism is, so to date, uh, Ethereum, which is kind of the second biggest cryptocurrency after Bitcoin in terms of people building interesting new things, basically is Ethereum and then everything else that that is trying to be Ethereum or, or, or a slight variation of Ethereum. I, I think it's like Ethereum's game to lose. And so you've had Ethereum kind of really on the scene since 2016, 2017. And the biggest critiques of Ethereum were one, it's it's too expensive, right? Like basically with a blockchain like Ethereum, like if everyone's trying to get access to the, the quote block space, the prices go up in terms of it's, it's an auction every single you know 15 seconds. And and so that's been a big issue. And anytime the market is really hot and there's some trendy new thing, board apes, whatever the block space in Ethereum gets really expensive. We call it gas. And people complain that it's, it's way too expensive to use this and it's never going to work. And you, you feed the fuel of all these, these kind of like midwits on Twitter who are the, the like self-proclaimed Web3 critics. Like they haven't built anything of, of substance themselves. Maybe a couple of them have had some exits, although I, I know there's like one guy who he's, he's really secure in his, his multiple exits that he lists the value of the exits that he's had. Um, Sure sign that you are you are very confident in your own ability to 
then I let everyone know that you have these massive eggs. It's just like take the take the win and, and like. <laughs> Anyways, getting getting away from the midwits, the expensive aspect of the blockchains is a a valid and and big critique as to why it will never be useful. And there's always kind of been this promise that Ethereum is going to scale in the future. And that, that has always felt like it's two years away. But where we are now, of course, during the, the bear market is last fall, Ethereum did this big thing called the merge, which also took another whole kind of vertical of critique and threw it out the window is that uh, cryptocurrency energy usage is, is you know, causing climate change. But put, put aside all the other type of energy usage that also contributes to climate change, but specifically cryptocurrency was, was bad. And, and that is the case when you're, you're mining is that you are just kind of doing computing, generating heat, using electricity, uh, for the sake of securing the network, like what happens with Bitcoin. But, but Ethereum switched over to this thing called proof of stakes, so a fancy way of saying you, you let the people who are the shareholders of the network do the security for the network. So it's a massive, you know, 99% decrease in electricity usage for Ethereum. So the climate change argument, check that off. And then the thing that that's kind of enabled is um, a, a new set of uh, changes that the, the network is planning to go do um, that enable these, what call, they call L2s. So if Ethereum is level one, uh, Optimism, there are other ones, Arbitrum, uh, Polygon, there are some other ones that are kind of more fancy, zero knowledge uh, L2s. But but collectively, there's a group of kind of other blockchains that are helping scale the activity on Ethereum while still relying on kind of Ethereum as the core source of truth for, for the security of the underlying money and stuff like that. So, so anyways, we, we originally were planning to do Ethereum L1 for Farcaster. And I think over the last six months, the L2 ecosystem has developed enough that it's it's still kind of early. Um, if, if we were doing something where we were moving a lot of money around at, at a protocol level, I, I still think we might not quite want to be jumping on L2s quite yet. But um, in the case of Forecaster, the, the stakes are somewhat low, especially given the size of the network today. And so taking a bet on kind of where the puck is going uh, was what we decided to do because it's a massive decrease in cost, right? So one of the things about Forecaster is we don't do much on-chain. The one thing we do on-chain is when you sign up. And if we were to do that on L1 Ethereum, like regular Ethereum, the average cost of a sign up and just purely paying to access and use the network and gas would have ranged from $10 today when things aren't that crazy to in a boom period, $100. So this is not, not scalable for a social network. And with um, optimism and then the general class of L2s, you're, you're in order of magnitude, if not more, um, or reduction of costs. So no, yeah, it's it's a, it's a pretty significant cost savings. It's less than a dollar. It's, it's you know, ten cents or something. So that 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 is actually pretty significant, and that the usability of the system and how we kind of build the app for Farcaster um, to kind of abstract some of the complexity. That's always been a dream. Even when I joined Coinbase in in twenty fourteen, a lot of it was like, okay, how can we abstract away some of the complexity of, of Bitcoin and then later cryptocurrency more broadly, uh, you know, seed phrases, all, all this kind of stuff that's pretty nerdy and technical. And how do we get to kind of like the something that feels more like Instagram 
And I think that finally the technology underneath is kind of a long, long, long-winded way of saying that, that that the infrastructure is finally there. Where now it's not quite in the way anymore, and you can actually start to build pretty great apps. That actually brings us to um, the the topic of I know you mentioned in the chat before is, is FriendTech, which is a new app in the kind of crypto ecosystem built by a deeply crypto native team. It's actually really kind of emblematic of crypto. It's, it's, it's an entirely a non team, at least from a public presence. So the founder is, is racer. They used to have zero X racer. They used to have an account got locked. Um, really, really funny, like witty account, just banger after banger all the time. And, um, the then a couple other people like shrimp pepe like i mean like the names are, are pretty great and um they had worked on a project i want to say it's two years ago now called tweet dow which is kind of an interesting idea where they took one twitter account and then they tried to give access on chain to a whole bunch of people and you could like vote on who could tweet from the account so it's almost like a, like a group alt or something for twitter yeah um and then that, the next experiment that they did was something a little bit more Snapchat on chain called Steelcam, where it's like you would encrypt, I think, encrypt a photo. And it's like you, if you owned it, you can decrypt it and like pass it along. And so that was kind of like a mix of Snapchat and the game. And then, and then Frentech, the most recent uh, project, which has done phenomenally well in terms of user adoption in a very short period of time, is relatively basic premise. Uh, so think like a group chat where you your fans have to own a, a share that they've renamed them to keys uh probably some lawyer told them to do that but but basically it's like you you get access to a group chat um and there are like some elements of like kind of like only fans from that there's obviously twitter x whatever you want to call it has subscribers there's patreon um there's obviously Substack, and then so, so so some of that kind of element of like i i buy into a person now have access to them. And what I think that they've done really well are, are two things. So the first is um, the the kind of dual-edged sword of, of, of crypto is, is if you financialize something, it will grow really fast. And then if you financialize something, you're going to get a lot of uh, kind of I wouldn't call it like bad elements, but you're going to bring out some of the worst things in people. Um, and so I think that they're, they're kind of going through that where they've had a massive amount of growth because when you buy into these accounts, the share price or the key price of each person rises and, um, that you can trade it, you can sell it. And then the other brilliant thing that they've done in, in that regard is just for signing up. If people start trading your shares, every time they trade the share, 10% of the, the trade goes to the kind of like, friend tech the app or the network five hmm. percent goes of, you know so half of that goes to the, like the company and then half of that goes to the person being traded so i'll give you an example i i signed up just checking the app out uh you know bought one or two shares of people i know like just 20 bucks in and just trying to kind of play around with it and i think just in i, I haven't sold anything but just by virtue of me, me being on the app, and you know, I have a, not a huge following on Twitter, but enough. And I think I'm somewhere it's like $1,000 worth of trading fees of just like the DWR friend tech account that people are trading back and forth. I'm getting the residual stuff out. 
I think Nikita Beer um, signed up and, and I, I think he claimed he made like 10 grand in 12 hours. And, and there have been a couple of other kind of accounts that are well over $100,000. These aren't people doing anything. It's just when you're trading, um, you're, you're, you're getting some of that cut. And so I think that that's a brilliant mechanic for this team for like naturally incentivizing people to, to check it out, right? Like so you could imagine there's going to be a whole bunch of people on Instagram over the next few weeks who have big accounts and be like, wait a second, if I get on front tech and people trade my account, I don't even have to do anything. I'm going to make money. I'm probably going to donate mine. I like, I, I kind of want to make sure I'm like, no one's like, oh, you profited off my thing. It's like, I legitimately was just trying the app. I didn't even know that was, was part of the, the sign up. Um, but, but the, the thing that they've also done really well, I was talking a little bit about this on Forecaster today is they used a kind of like a lesser known, but it's been around for a while, but there's been a material change, which I'll get to in a second, something called a progressive web app. So PWA. And there's been a lot of talk over the last few years about Apple's, um, App store tax, right? Like most famous case, thirty percent. And Sweeney and Epic, and they're basically saying, "Hey, like Fortnite's paying thirty percent of stuff to Apple. Like we don't want that deal. Like we want a better deal. And we're Fortnite. We're you know the most popular game. Like we're gonna um, fight you." And they actually lost in federal court to Apple. Um, and, and basically, the judge was like, "Apple built the platform. Don't don't you know if you, people love Fortnite so much, they'll go buy an Android or, or do something different." And so that we could we could talk about that because there's like this whole antitrust movement against um, the big tech for being big. In each case, you know whether it's Apple or Amazon, they all have kind of slightly different arguments. But the the hard thing is that most antitrust stuff is consumer harm, and it's very hard to, to demonstrate consumer harm. It's like the consumer pays the price, and they get the nice internet purchase experience. And the person who has to pay the taxes is Epic. And now they would argue like, hey, I'm paying, you know, I, I would have cheaper prices if, if I didn't have to pay the tax. But uh, let, let's actually not get down to an antitrust argument. I want to go back to what the progressive web app um, that Frontech did is, is basically rather than doing an app in the app store, something you download, they just have a website, friend.tech. And you go to it on your phone. And the first thing it says is you have to install this on your home screen. Which is this like weird kind of like bookmark? No one really does that. Wait, so you go to the share button and you tap add to home screen. It puts the bookmark with like an icon, so it looks just like a normal app. The app's logo is like like blue with like bunny ears. And what is interesting is Apple released, and I and I think this is probably because there's a lot of pressure. Uh, Apple from an antitrust standpoint, there's this your EU Digital Markets Act that comes into play in 2024 next year. South Korea has already passed a law. Japan is passing a law around like alternative app stores. So they're getting a lot of pressure from developed countries all around the world to be like, you have to be a little bit more uh, permissive. And so I think this is a, a, a little bit of a kind of fig leaf argument for Apple to say, hey, look, if, if, you, don't want, if you don't want to follow our app store rules, just go and do a progressive web app. And so... Basically, it's just kind of taking a website that you could get to in Safari, but making it feel a little bit more like an app. But the other big thing is that now you get native push notifications, which is a critical part of like any app trying to, especially a social app, trying to build habit and get you to come back into the app. So these guys, um, it, it only like finally kind of rolled out in, in like May, June. So they're, they're one of the first apps to get through the gate. And this is important for crypto because, um, 
Apple de uh, deems any like kind of version of crypto outside of like investment in um, Bitcoin and ETH. It's a little weird. Like Coinbase can have an app and doesn't have to pay the tax, but like NFT apps. So if we can go to like OpenSea's app, right? They have an app. Like the whole point on OpenSea is you, you buy and sell NFTs. You can't buy and sell NFTs on OpenSea's app. It's just like a, a pretty way of viewing it. And so this allows them to get outside of that and, and uh, with this progressive web app. And, and so Frentech has been able to kind of create this like trading interface. Um, and so I think it has like a bunch of uh, you know, talking heads on, on Twitter talking about how this could revolutionize things. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. If you don't already subscribe to Turpentine's industry-leading newsletters, like our new daily AI newsletter, Emergent Behavior, or Media Empires, you should. But that's not what I'm here to tell you about. The platform we use to power these newsletters is called Beehive, and it's excellent. First of all, it was started by the same early team who helped build Morning Brew into a $75 million newsletter business. And they built Beehive to offer that same powerful functionality to anyone sending emails. From essayists to business owners, the platform is beautiful, their text editor is intuitive, and they help you scale your audience with custom growth features. Beehive has powerful tools to help you monetize your content. You can easily launch paid subscriptions or pursue an advertising model. The Beehive platform will even connect you to premium brands to sponsor your newsletter. Not only do we use them, but thousands of the top newsletters in the world also use them, like Milk Road, Blockworks, The Lindy Newsletter, and so many more. Beehive's founder hooked up Moment of Zen listeners with a sweet deal. Get 20% off for three months with code MOZ. Visit beehive.com, that's B-E-E-H-I-I-V.com to get started. I, I tweeted this and I, I was talking about progressive web apps in February, like saying like, hey, I think this is interesting. Like I, I spent a lot of time thinking about like how to build the Farcaster apps and like understanding the app store rules and where things are headed is like part of the job. But I think um, it's like, uh, okay, so my, my tweet was basically, um, expired like this this like term like expired tired wired like it's like old school and wired was the magazine so expired is like a lot of crypto apps like god i'm not going to build a mobile app because of the app rules. and then tired is people thinking like pwas are like the, the future of apps and then the real wired move is you know that like major economies around the world and maybe the u.s in the next 18 months very well could just force apple's hand and, and we could get into an environment where you can just release a normal app and trade NFTs and not have to deal with all this. But I think that there's like a version of, look, this is an app that has had tremendous growth in the crypto market in, in like deep crypto winter. Like right now, there's nothing going on in crypto. Uh, and I wouldn't say nothing in the sense that like you, you do have a lot of innovation that's like being built right now. And to give credit, the other thing that Frontech took advantage of was Coinbase released a new L2. This is going to sound a little confusing. Coinbase released a new L2 called Base that is an optimism. So the thing that Farcaster is joining, uh, chain. So it's actually part of this thing that they're calling. It's like the super chain. It's like, I don't know, the Avengers of L2s where optimism is, is saying you can either join the like main optimism chain. They call that OP main. And that's where Farcaster is going. Or if 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 you need your own chain, we can we can provide that to you too. So so you have um, like a company like Zora, which is like a NFT company. They have Zora chain, and then Coinbase. Uh, one of my former colleagues, Jesse Pollock, who, who I worked really closely with when I was at Coinbase, he, he's still at the company. 
And he's kind of had a second act in, in getting Coinbase to like figure out like how to be more crypto native. So kind of like within the industry, Coinbase a lot of times gets like, it's like, oh, they're IBM, like you know, AOL. Like it's like they were good for the, the early era. They were good for the kind of like fiat to crypto bridge that's still a relevant business, but all the cool stuff is happening like on-chain and, and decentralized and all that kind of stuff. And and so Jesse kind of has like willed this thing into existence where now Coinbase actually has its own blockchain. And this is not crazy for, for centralized uh, exchanges. Like Binance has had Binance. I think Binance has had like multiple attempts at chains, the most recent one being like Binance Smart Chain. But the, the interesting thing there is like you can imagine that Coinbase's chain is interesting for people because Coinbase has 100 million KYC accounts. And they're, you know, a lot of the UX of crypto is like, how do you get from, I don't have any crypto to be able to use the crypto app? And if you take the 100 million people who already have a Coinbase account, they already have some kind of like fiat bank method, you know, bank payment method or, or crypto card payment method linked to their Coinbase account, they're only a few taps away from being able to use something like this. And so Frentech was actually one of the first apps, like based only launched a couple of weeks ago, one of the first apps out the gate on, on base. And so it's just like kind of exciting because there's, there's actually stuff happening now. Um, but I do think we're still very much in the bear market. And uh, I don't know, like I, I was at like last episode or whatever, Antonio was asking me about stuff and I gave him some like grim answer around crypto. And yeah, I think... The challenge with uh, a crypto winter is a lot of hopium tends to be tied to like Bitcoin monetary policy, which for those who kind of like don't follow this, like whenever Bitcoin every few years, the block reward, which is kind of like the inflation rate in Bitcoin, even though like Bitcoin long term is deflationary, there's a amount of new Bitcoin coming every 10 minutes, right? Every block that's what's yep. going on. That halves just like in like a like clockwork. And whenever that happens, it kind of creates this uh, mimetic reflexive thing where people are like, oh, wait, there's going to be less inflation in Bitcoin. And then so you usually get some kind of run up and it's happened multiple times. And so at this point, it's basically religion that a Bitcoin having is, is the way to get out of the bear market. Put a big uh, asterisk next to that. That was a ZERP version of Bitcoin having. So I, I think people are... There's a little bit of hopium that just like Bitcoin will will kind of save the space in terms of a monetary push, monetary policy push. When the reality is, if, if the interest rates and kind of like risk premiums for assets is uh, where it is today, no one in crypto has existed in that environment, at least at, at any amount of scale, right? Like crypto really comes onto the scene in 2013. Yeah, it's still pretty fringe. It was like 2017 when I think went more mainstream, and so the fact that all of these boom bust cycles have happened in a world where capital was really cheap and, and that risk was valued. I think uh, anyone telling you like when the bear market is ending, like they have no idea. But even one critique of even the last bull market was was that people had um, was that hey yeah prices might be ripping, but where are the actual use cases in terms of how how is this affecting people's lives in, in daily uh, besides some of the you know. Um, like DeFi stuff, I guess, or um, I'm curious, I guess, are you sympathetic to that, to that critique? And whenever the markets rip again, and there's another bull market, like for people who've tuned out of crypto or haven't even got into it yet, and they're you know all excited about AI or other things, like in the next few years, how are you, like, what are you expecting the main sort of uh, either, you know, 
use cases that bring you know a billion users uh, into crypto or how, how are you thinking about that so I, i'm sympathetic to the the idea that like what makes silicon valley great is silicon valley is good at building products that people use right like that that that's where all the successes come from these like massive consumer surpluses from the big companies um you know, I think Google probably being the best in the sense that the average user does never pay Google anything and look at all the value you get from Google. Uh, I think that the thing that is intellectually dishonest about that, if you're like, you're kind of like pro tech generally, but then like you don't like crypto is you just don't have a sector that has, um, the ability to kind of like create its own money and then derivatives and all these other kind of remixable financial components and move at the speed of the internet. And so if you just kind of like look at AI and everything that's happened, like everyone's criticizing crypto bull market and then just kind of look at where the AI market, I mean, even the beginning of MOZ, like think about how many episodes at the right at the beginning, it's just like so frothy. And like, you can start to feel that air coming out of the balloon. Like some of that hype has not played out. And if you, told me that there was like a way for retail to get in on the action of AI in like a meaningful way at the early stage, there would be so much BS like that people would be pointing at like that AI use case doesn't even make sense and all this. And so I think part of it is the, the direct access to global retail liquidity flows plus leverage plus like that, that's what make, makes crypto the worst in that regard. But I, I don't think like the companies who are kind of like raising these crazy AI valuations, and then you actually talk to any of these VCs privately, they're like, yeah, I have no idea where the value accrual is. And a lot of them would say that it's probably growth stage companies like optimistically and more bearishly, it's, it's probably just the big tech companies, which the, the capital markets have already rewarded, right? And so I... I think that is is one element, and I also just think it's like crypto speed running. It's it's the actual last recent invention that's like a fundamentally new thing that hasn't had that much time to like bake. Whereas you know, Mark always talks about how there was like there was an AI boom in the seventies and the eighties and nineties, and like each each decade they just rename it, and then maybe the size of the capital uh, bubble is not as big. But part of that is because you're you're limiting it to institutional investors. And so I, I think I'm sympathetic in some ways that it's like you should have people who are capable of like understanding some amount of risk and realizing they can lose it all. And like the scammy retail stuff, I think is is definitely worse in crypto than most places. But I don't know. I mean, look at look at Jamath's facts, right? And I don't think you get to say just because the SEC approved SPACs that went down 90%, like you respond to someone on Twitter, I'm in the arena, you're you're on the sidelines, like you get a life, you're a loser. It's like, I would have, I, I'm sympathetic to the in the arena argument and did he do anything illegal? Probably not. Like SPACs are legal. It's like a legal structure. Hey, there's a reason that they hadn't really been used and that like tend to be like kind of scammy or really speculative, like gold, gold mines and resource things. But the fact that he hasn't taken like a public L, yeah, right? So someone who like really prides himself, at least publicly, like the way he kind of presents himself all in is like, oh, I'm I'm gonna steal man this, or you know, don't yeah. don't win fuck 
American. And then it's like, okay, dude, you, you have a tweet where you compared yourself to Buffett with Geico with Metro Mile, it's down 94%. Just take the L. Like that's what people are at. And then going back to the authenticity thing of like politicians, that's what people crave. And I actually think Elon, he's not always like this, but I, but I do think that there is a level of, of, Every so often, he'll do something where he'll admit being wrong, or, or and and you talk to anyone at, at um, kind of like SpaceX or people who worked with him for a long time, and like whether he does it in like a real public way, there is a like he 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 does have a truth seeking component to it where he he will kind of correct when when he's wrong. But but I actually think that's a big critique also of like you know any any public figure. It's like when you're wrong about something, just just admit it and. Then people kind of go, oh, like this is actually a more reasonable person. And then they they lose that fuel. But it's like the doubling down, like the comparing yourself to Berkshire Hathaway and your investor letter, like and kind of setting it up, like we're going to do this every year because I'm so great. And the next year you just like kind of memory hold the whole thing. Yeah. That that that's that's BS. Like you you should just take public accountability for for the loss. And then you can say, hey, look, I tried something you know, adults buying it. Great. But so, so like going all the way back to the crypto stuff, I think if you just look around anywhere, there's, there are grifts and kind of scammy stuff. Um, I think crypto makes it easier to do a non, like a lot less accountability, but that said, like, I don't know, they got no Quan, they have SPF back in jail. Like it, it feels like if anyone's gotten accountability, it's, it's, it's the crypto people. And there are a lot of people walking around. I mean, who went to jail for, for 2008? <laughs> like, I had to pay my tax dollars when to pay for it, but I, I didn't get anyone put in jail. The, the fascinating thing about the accountability is there's also this other school of thought which says, if you apologize, that means they'll just, like, destroy you. I, I don't think it's apologizing. I think it's, it's just, like, acknowledging... And 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 it, it was kind of like weasel words, like in that that tweet where it was like, I tried some things, like I'm in the arena, like f you, yeah. Where I don't know, maybe don't have these navel gazing public letters, like you, you know, one year you're comparing, you're, you're like beating Buffett, and then the next year you memory hold that, and then you know, and and, and you're just getting ripped apart on Twitter, right? Like especially FinTwit, like this is like all an auto account. They're going to read your letter. They're going to like kind of figure out. So you probably got margin called and all this other kind of stuff. Um, I don't know. I, I just, I, I would hope people hold me accountable. Like I, I think one of the nice things about Farcaster is, is you kind of have to have a little bit of a humble pie in the sense of when you're wrong. And um, we can have a strong point of view of like, this is how we should build it. And these are the decisions we're making. But um if I was to do something really stupid in terms of like hypocritical or um, trying to like, I don't know, whitewash is probably the wrong word, but it's, uh, I don't know, I'd get called out on it pretty fast and, and I would just, I don't know, I, I hope I would take the L. And not apologize, but just like kind of being like, yeah, I was wrong, period. Like that, that's not an apology. It's, it's an acknowledgement that you were wrong. And I think that's what people are, are looking for. Yeah, it's not this necessarily groveling, uh, you know, like begging to get sort of their approval, but it's it's just like an admission. Yeah, they, they... it's owning it. It's just like people want people to own stuff because because the thing is, is, if you ride high on on the pump, like in the, yeah. in the pitch, when it doesn't play out, like you better damn own that. 
Totally. So let's get back to the other part of the question, which was in the next bull run, um, like what are the applications or use cases or, or like how is crypto going to get to a billion users? I don't know if it, it's the next bull run, right? And I don't even like that term. It's like bull market is like a little bit better upcycle because it is very cyclical. I think just generally where I think crypto is going to do well is if the infrastructure around scaling continues to improve, then I think you're you're going to start to attract developers who now look at the technology and go, oh, I actually have this problem I'm trying to solve. And for the first time, the technology is like, you know, one of these, so kind of like what Coinbase has, the, the kind of like OP, uh, you know, the optimism chain. You Some people are calling these these app chains, right? So you have like Ethereum and then you could just like go boot up one of these OP chains, which is basically the same kind of like programming environment for smart contracts as Ethereum. And I don't know, you could have a competitor to Visa, right? And, and maybe not at the speed and transaction processing of Visa, but the, the idea that you could have multiple financial institutions all using the same specific blockchain to, to trade things back and forth. And maybe that one's more KYC or something. And so... I think you're just going to start to have smart people play around with what that enables. And I'm optimistic that, there you go, uh, that you're going to start to see new types of crypto apps that A, have just improved user experience. So they're able to abstract away a lot of the, the like kind of early on for the first 10 years of crypto complexity. And we're already starting to kind of see that, like the stuff that we're working on. I can like kind of see 12 months from now when you sign up for Farcaster, you might not even know it's not crypto. Uh, it'll feel much closer to a web two app. And I think that coupled with the actual underlying infrastructure, some people are going to figure out interesting stuff to do with that. And I think that it's only going to get better because I think that there's a lot of interesting research that's still fundamentally happening in, in things like zero knowledge proofs, which we've talked about on, on the show before, but just, just like crypto is going to continue to nerd snipe really smart people because there's a lot of like academic research that now has like a practical application within the, the kind of like hardcore cryptographic primitives. And as a result of that, the technology will get better. And as the technology gets better, entrepreneurs who don't necessarily need to do the R&D can just commercialize it and, and use it to solve problems. So, so when I go to the like billion users, it's like people just like kind of saying that and I'm not criticism as much as I get a lot on, on Twitter. And I actually think that gets fuel for the midwits who then just like, like to argue. And it's just like, I don't know, like just focus on the people who, who are excited about building with it. And I, I suspect that a lot of those people will tend to be people who move to San Francisco. And like by being in San Francisco and meeting, you know, other smart people who are working on different things, that cross-pollination of ideas. And then not to say that, I mean, crypto is actually more global of a like tech sector than I think a lot, but I do think that there is a advantage to being in San Francisco. Like, whereas now you're talking to the smartest AI people in the world, there's startup founders working on that stuff. And, and maybe there's something that clicks for you that you use crypto to do that or, or vice versa. Yeah. And one of your your points in the last episode was that what you realized with Farcaster is this idea that um, like you had to be working on things that were uniquely enabled by 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 crypto. 
Um, do you think that is that your sort of belief for the space more broadly that the things that emerge that will work are things that could only be built using crypto? Yeah, I, I have a blog post on this um, that's significantly worse or non-existent. I actually don't think it was I'm coined that; just kind of had existed. I think Fred Ursum actually, you know, picked it up somewhere and would say it at Coinbase. And I think it's actually the best way to think about crypto. And and, and I think Peter Thiel has a, a version of this where it's like ten percent versus ten x. But but the basic idea is that if a crypto idea is trying to marginally improve something that already exists, the, at least today, it, it's still the, the kind of like UX complexity and the additional clunkiness of having to deal with this system is not going to outcompete um, a centralized system that, that's you know, running on AWS and like just the, the pinnacle of, of, of where we are today. Um, that the only good use cases for crypto are going to be in situations where there's literally nothing else that can do this um and or significantly worse right and so obviously the the natural example with bitcoin early on was darknet markets bitcoin was the way to be able to send internet payments because you weren't going to be able to use paypal or you would easily get shut down and then naturally internet money generally but there's a bit of like a circular thing with it and that, that drives i think a lot of people crazy and it's like okay this is actually not impacting the real world it's not touching a mortgage like i like you're basically just speculating on other crypto and all of the DeFi stuff is kind of like uh completely circular but to to use the farcaster example we want a kind of like name registered so you can just kind of think about it as like Every name on Twitter maps to some Ethereum address. Uh, like that, that's essentially what we're building in Farcast Crunch. That's like the only thing we're doing on chain. No different than every name on Twitter on, on actual Twitter maps to an email address or a phone number. Right? Like that, that's how you authenticate that you are who you are. The difference between the Farcaster version of that and Twitter, um, let's say you have the username X. You've been using it for 15 years on Twitter. You're happy. New owner comes in, decides that the new name of the app is X, offers you a t-shirt, and then takes away your name. In the end of the world, it's probably not the worst thing. You probably destroy an effect, like you get a lot more recognition and, and whatever. But but the reality is um, no one has any expectation that they like really own their name. I think people maybe, but like the reality is you're just renting it. You're not even renting, you're not even paying Twitter. Twitter, Twitter's letting you use it. And in a decentralized version of the world, um, assuming you can get people to use it, like that's, that's its own thing, you, you actually own like your account and your name. No one can take it away from you. And that is, I'm not aware of any system you could build in a centralized way that ultimately either has, there's, there's some central administrator who can, who can change the value in that database. Or they can just unplug the server if, if they try to make it not like that. Whereas the beauty of putting that on a blockchain is that every computer running Optimism, um, which there are many out there, uh, is running a version of, of that registry. So you go pull one out of the wall, or you, you, no one can muck with that. And so I think that is an example, basic example, of something that you can only do with a blockchain that you can't do with a centralized system. And I think what we will see over the next five or 10 years are more and more use cases 
now that some of this infrastructure is getting better, where people can build systems that were just fundamentally not possible with centralized systems. Now, whether you think that's valuable, I mean, I don't know. Like, I think it's valuable. That's why I'm building one. And but it, and if you had to outline in the most like crisp way why that that's valuable, what would you say? In the case of something like Twitter, and and I, I hate to even just like make forecasts for Twitter, like just just say just purely a public social network where people kind of have like a graph relationship. I follow you, you follow me, like we interact, we all, all these kind of um, connections, right? The world where that works, like if you can somehow will that into existence, so that's very much what we're trying to figure out with Farcaster. That will attract an enormous amount of developer interest because now people like people are very social, like people are going to want to try to build new experiences to connect with each other. Um, look at how many different versions of dating apps there are. Like it's just like you know, people people are constantly craving some new way to connect, right? Different social networks. Um, if a developer who comes up with an interesting new way for people to kind of connect and socialize online can go build on this kind of open protocol, they they are able to capture all of the value that they they generate for the most part, like in the sense that um, no one can come in and say, no, you can't use this anymore. If you were to try to do that on a centralized social network, which we have two prominent examples, early days in Facebook, they have, you know, Facebook Connect, like you sign in with Facebook, it was like you could have apps. Um, there was an actual app that you could like buy and trade your friends on uh, Facebook, which I think, um, I forget the guy's name. He's, he's like on Twitter and, and he sold that to Zynga, which was obviously a company that was specifically built on top of like Facebook's platform. And then Facebook changed their strategy and then that went away. So all of that, those developers who worked really hard to add value to Facebook, right? Hadn't had the rug pull out. Same thing with Twitter. Right. All of the early Twitter apps, uh, mobile apps were all third party. Twitter acquired one of them then started to put restrictions on the API, kind of like ran along as like this wounded API for 10 years. Elon comes along and says, sorry, this is a cost center. We're, we're just getting rid of it. So the, the fact that there was so much innovation that actually happened in those third party clients, like they invented the, the retweet and the quote tweet and, you know, hashtags were invented by users, that replies were invented by, you know, like all that innovation was not actually done by the core team. Um, and so now we're in an environment where, you know, Twitter or X is run by a product dictator, which not the worst strategy in the world, like great, great things tend to do get built by like very opinionated people. But I would argue that if you can actually have a protocol, then you're getting the collective group of product dictators and that you have a whole bunch of different people building things independently, knowing that whatever they build, they, they actually have true ownership over. And, and we, we have a, an example of this. This has worked really well. It's called web, right? It's like completely decentralized. And if I build a website, there is no Apple tax. There is no, like, I, I, I am the king of my kingdom in, in, on my website. And, and so I think getting a social network, which has a certain set of things, uh, to the level of the web, what I think would be a, a massive net, you know, increase in innovation and, and utility of the world. Utility is probably not the right word because now it's not like EA. It's just like this is massive consumer surplus. But yeah, existing social networks would never let that happen. So the idea would be that 
you just win over by creating a better product such that enough people switch over or if there's a new social network every 15 years or something you know just kind of like the next generation might be sort of you know crypto native well i don't even think like ignore the crypto part right like if you're just strictly using the crypto underneath to solve the problem of like how do you actually keep this in a way that that stays credibly kind of neutral and decentralized that that's the crypto element for farcaster everything else is just like you know you don't you don't need any of the other crypto parts like you, you just try to generalizable protocol that other people can build social networks on i think that the challenging thing and, and the thing that you know we're still trying to figure out is how do you how do you get the network effect flywheel going right so because it's like the early version felt very much like a twitter clone it's increasingly less like that we made a lot of changes to the product some things have worked some haven't and i think the Conventional strategy is no one knows how social new social networks work. Maybe Nikita Beer knows like how teenagers with anonymous polling apps work. But like for the most part, you actually don't have a lot of people who are just like just like social network apps, social network, like it's just kind of catching a lightning in the bottle. So the the conventional approach is you just have a thousand people independently try social networks and maybe one or two of them work and you just never hear about the 998 that didn't. Right, or maybe you know, here a few that are like subscale. Our point of view, because we're trying to build a protocol, is we're just going to try to iteratively do it and like build this as as a bit of like a movement and a, and, and a kind of like people are excited about the fact that the protocol, Farcaster, isn't owned by anyone. Right, like we we our our company Warpcast has an app. Right, so you can think of that as like Gmail to email, or if you want to use a crypto example. MetaMask to Ethereum, right? So we we have the app that is on the protocol. And our point of view is if we can get the protocol to be successful, our, our app will be done. But I think there is an ethos around the underlying Farcaster protocol that over the last three years that we've built in that people feel ownership in this protocol, despite there's no equity ownership in Farcaster itself. So um two examples one a bunch of like 100 people had like a car farcaster conference in june of of this year in boston called farcom like mm-hmm. we didn't organize it like it was just 100 people who had met on the internet and they thought like this is really cool let's have a conference about farcast uh it's like one day thing went to it really cool to meet a bunch of people that i'd never met Another one is uh, people on Farcaster have created like DAOs. Basically, it's like kind of like an internet a fan club or group. And in this case, people actually like put a little bit of money into a pot, um, and then they get to decide what they do with the money. Like, and then the goal of uh, one of these purple is to like further grow Farcaster awareness. People are doing this like on their own. Like they're just like kind of excited about like we're forecasters and so the, both are, are really great and then and and that is actually what i think is different is if you're a centralized company i don't think anyone's getting that excited about it like it's like okay fine like this is a product that's useful to me um but i don't feel any ownership in the brand it's not like who i am whereas i think one of the elements that you know varun my co-founder and i both learned in the 10 years having worked in crypto, both at Coinbase and now, now Farcaster, is 
there's really strong affinity to to some of these cryptocurrency blockchains like Ethereum. People are more big. like they, they, there's almost like a religious component to it. Yeah, and I think that there are also some open source projects that exist out there that people are really passionate about. So like people are really passionate about Linux or they're really passionate about um, you know Python and or, or uh, React like in, in JavaScript world. And so the the model actually is a little bit more like we're building an open source software like movement, but with maybe not just developers, right? Because people are actually participating in the social network. And so that's a that's been a little bit more of our contrarian strategy is can you build a consumer grade social network um and, and underneath like a developer grade protocol much more akin to a a traditional like building slow build on an open source movement. So that that's how we've approached it. Like our point of view is like we have no capabilities at like you know like we're geniuses around growth and all this other kind of stuff. It's, we're just trying to build it in a way that's authentic to us. And it's like make sure the tech works, try to get good people to use it, listen to their feedback and make progress week over week. And and so we talked about on this podcast with Eugene and others just how social media is bifurcating, and it's it's hard to imagine a new social network kind of that competes with Twitter kind of taking over you know all, all of Twitter. It feels like people are building their own fiefdoms, so to speak. And right now, to date, you know, it seems like you've really captured um, a lot of the uh, influential parts of crypto Twitter. Um, and is is your belief that the user base will uh, you know, 10,000 X or, you know, a hundred thousand X from here, or is it that you will figure out, like, are you going to make a little bit of money from, you know, hundreds of millions of people, or are you going to make a lot of money from, uh, you know, a smaller subset, uh, of, of people, or do you dispute the premise of, of, of that question or the assumptions? Uh, so, let me, let me, so one, I, I think we've done okay with crypto Twitter, like influential people. Like we have some some big name folks who use it, but I what I would say that Eugene is 100 spot on is status as a service. I, I, that sounds like a broken record on this stuff, but um, most of the people who have a lot of followers on Farcaster don't have a lot of followers on Twitter, and they they're like Farcaster native, and I, I think that that's great. I don't I didn't know most of them before. If you take them, 100 most active people in the network, um, and then kind of like you know weight them by followers or whatever, like that 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 core group of people. A lot of them are kind of like new micro celebrities within the forecaster ecosystem. And I think that's awesome. Um, and so Eugene, spot on in, in terms of like that, this is how it is. I, I think I originally tried to to do a little bit of like can I extract my network from Twitter? That that failed completely. I think the my view is just like focus on the next milestone rather than because if you just sit there and you think about like Facebook's got you know how many billion daily active users like and you've got a single digit thousands it just it would just be so crushing you might as well not do it um versus uh you know if i think about like a year ago where we were um we were in hundreds of users per day and then a year before that we were in the tens of users per day and so again like going back to the like that doesn't sound like this guy knows what he's talking about in terms of building a social network. Hey, I don't like, this is the first time I'm trying to do it. And so if I just look at the progress, like, okay, like, can we just string together 
two, three, four, five more years of growth. Like hopefully at some point you hit some inflection point and maybe grow faster. Um, but I think what's underrated is the, you know, the, the parable of the, the kind of like, would you rather have, um, I'm trying to tell a parable. I don't even know, but it's, it's the chess form, right? It's like one grain of rice on each square of the chess. So it's, it's, you know, squared to the six, I think there's 64. Uh, so by the 64th, it's like you, you, you have more rice than exists in the universe. Um, so I, I think like our our point of view is week over week progress every week, see where you go. And so like my, I'm really focused on it's like, how do I get to the next order of magnitude? How do I get to the ten, tens of thousands of daily active users, right? Because every user that's using our app is, is, is a user for the protocol. Um, and I think if you just kind of think in those orders of magnitude, you, you have to adjust your strategy of like, okay, well, how do I get to the, the next order of magnitude? Like probably the path that got me here from the last one is not going to work, right? Like manually onboarding the first couple hundred people via Zoom call. The next, you know, couple order of magnitude, I, I just had people DM me on Twitter. We're phasing out of that. So, so moving to a new, new strategy to continue to figure out how to grow things. Um, look, if, if, if the, the daily active users just like collapsed over a three month period and like everyone just stopped using it, I think we'd have to probably go back to the drawing board. But right now it's, it's, it's slow and steady grind up. So it's just like, okay, like yeah. make things a little bit better each week. But is the, um, no, that makes sense. But it, your user base, I sense has high overlap in terms of the, the types of things that they like to, to to sort of buy within crypto in the sense that like you, you could imagine your goal is, Hey, we're going to keep growing orders of magnitude and eventually try to be as big as Twitter. Your goal could also be, Hey, we're going to try to get all, you know, crypto people who buy certain kind, you know, NFTs, um, to, to join Farcaster. And then we're going to like sell them something else because they're so passionate about the platform. They're so passionate about the people that the community on the platform that we have brand affinity and we could, you know, sort of sell high ticket items to a smaller, a smaller being hundreds of thousands or low digit millions. Um, how do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great question. I, w- I would frame it as I, my, my expected value over the next few years outside of, you know, barring some, some major breakthrough is if we're successful in what we're doing, we will have, single-digit million DAO in, like, our app work test. Like, we'll just, you know, figure it out each step, like, made that progress, and, and you know, in a few years, we're, we're at that point. That's still subscale for a social network, right? Like, you look at, look, like, Twitter and some of the other ones. You know, Snapchat, right? Snapchat, I think, like, for Snap has, like, 700 million now or, like, some crazy number, and they just, like, get hammered every one of their earnings because they just don't do as well and monetizing as Facebook. So I, I think one ad-based revenue is like a like that that is not like a hopium, which was the kind of like previous era of social is just like get big as possible and make money on ads. And it's like that kind of doesn't work. So I think we have to figure out other ways to monetize. The one interesting thing about being in crypto, to your point, is there's actually just a lot of like economic activity that's happening. So there are natural ways to kind of like plug into that and add, you know, value that enough that people would want to pay you a little fee or a cut of something. So, so that's like one whole area. And in a world where you're capturing a percentage of value moving through, you start to look more like something like Stripe, right? Not, not 
directly, but but the idea is like you, you're thinking a little bit more as like I'm a, I'm a layer of value in, in kind of economic transactions rather than ads, which is like drive the number of eyeballs up and then just try to sell it against those eyeballs. Um, I think that there's also a component, and I was actually talking about this with someone on Farcaster today, but what one thing to think about is like subreddits. Uh, big subreddits have over a million people in them. And maybe each subreddit should be its own social network. And I think we have some stuff that we're working on with Farcaster, we call them channels, but you can kind of think of them as decentralized subreddits. But I would imagine that if you took 10 at scale subreddits and you were able to build like a better product, I think there's even a company that's trying to build something for like Wall Street bets, right? Like they're trying to build like a verticalized like social network around like you know, stock trading tips, that kind of stuff. So that's like an example of a venture back fund. But you can imagine that the verticals that people it works with, and you don't know which ones beyond just crypto, those become their own kind of businesses and you string together enough of them. And and, and again, there's the protocol versus the actual like, you know, our, our app. But I don't know. I, I think like a million person subreddit and a specific topic is probably like a $10 million EBITDA business. So is that venture scale? No, but if you had 10 or 15 or 20 of them, and then you were just like really good at those, and then you don't hire 7,000 people and have like HR departments and DEI departments and like all this other kind of like, and I shouldn't say you don't have an HR department, but like just basically all these like professional managerial class people who are just like there for meetings and like you're just actually like a really efficient organization, which obviously Elon has shown you can take his his decisions and antics on one side, but the reality is there were people in November who are, who who've never built anything of like substance from a technology standpoint. That Twitter is two weeks away from falling apart. Last time I checked, it works. Like yeah. So um, that bloat in the in the kind of like PMC version of Silicon Valley, like just don't have that mistake. And and we were talking in the group chat about um, I don't know there was some like kind of like mid billionaire like increase in billionaire thing and i think that there is an interesting point though that there is a realization that venture scale companies um they will continue to exist and that's the thing that like makes silicon valley special and like frankly like why if i was young in my career i'd want to go move to san francisco despite the dysfunction is like the ability to attach yourself in an early age to or early part of your career to something that is a rocket ship, like that, that is a such a unique experience, both from a career experience standpoint, economic standpoint, future future optionality in terms of like your trajectory. Yeah, that that, that I think will exist. But I do agree with that that take around like I do think there's just going to be more ten person, twenty person companies don't take venture capital in the traditional sense. Maybe maybe you take some outside investment. And you go back to a little bit more of like a dividend structure or, or something rev share. I mean, you you're you're a great example of this in the sense that like you, you're kind of like trained and brought up in Silicon Valley, but turpentine that's your, your you own the business. We yeah. have friends who are kind of in that vein, and I think AI is only going to give that more leverage and, and stuff like that. And so, if I go back to the the Farcaster world, if like we're successful in proliferating this protocol, I can imagine you have you know. 100,000 different independent little like kind of micro social networks that monetize in, in different different ways. Like I, I think there's like a business surf line 
And I don't even think it's really a social network. I, I, don't, I don't use it on the surfer, but I think it's like they make a ton of money because there are a bunch of people who are passionate about surfing that want the surf camps. And I think there's another one like on the snow where they give like snow forecasts that are better than Google or Tom. And that's like a $10 million a year business run by like a couple of people. And so I like, I just think that to use like the Ben Thompson kind of like find your niche and like on the internet, the scale is big. I think that there's a world where if the, the underlying infrastructure is taken care of by a protocol, which that would be the case with Farcast, right? You don't need to go build the distribution of like in terms of like the actual servers that generate the feeds and all this kind of stuff for uh, Twitter. You, you just can like plug into this thing. There's already existing liquidity and then you build the best experience on top of it and you're able to figure out ways to monetize. That, that becomes a pretty viable business and you don't need that many people on it. Yeah, yeah a, few, a few thoughts there. So yeah, the, the, the take was, was from Sam Lesson basically saying, hey, there's going to be all these billionaires you never heard of because they're going to, you know, dominate some niche and the internet, you know, so many people are now on internet and, and mobile that these niches have gotten to a set of scale where you can now build massive businesses go, going deep on niches. And um, to your point, you know, if I was to ask this audience, what's the most successful media company of the past 15, 20 years? Um, most people would not know this company called Industry Dive. Industry Dive is a B2B media company. It barely raised any money, small angel round. It sold for $500 million. Um, and it's probably worth a lot more than that today. And it's basically just a series of niche publications. It's like uh, HR Dive, CFO Dive, um, you know, Pharma Dive, just these like unsexy positions or industries that are uh, that have high budgets behind them, basically, or, 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 you know, highly valuable audiences to own. And Industry Dive started, I believe, in the early 2010s and hasn't really iterated their product a, a ton. And so uh, uh, another company, Workweek, looked at them and said, hey, if they were started in 2023, they would look more like, you know, Lenny Rachitsky and what he's done for product managers or Harry Stebbings and for VCs and kind of the rise of this business creator class. Um, and I looked at what they were doing and said, yeah, that, that's that's pretty interesting. I'm, I'm starting in, in, in podcasts. They've gone super deep in, in newsletters. I really respect what, what, what they're doing. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's why we're trying to to create a bunch of like category defining show. We have a CFO show co coming out pretty soon. So yeah, it's definitely the, the belief that there's a, what is it? You know, there's riches in, in, in niches. And if, especially if you're the, the best one and especially in, in, in B2B and enterprise. Yeah. Look, I, 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 I buy that. I think I, the thing I was quibbling with Sam on is um, he, he said that, that AI is the last grasp of the old model. It's like, that, that that's it's like we have Apple Vision Pro coming out next year. Dog. Like this is gonna be a whole new paradigm and a whole bunch of capital that needs to get deployed into that. So um but I do agree with him in the sense that I, I do think you're just gonna have more people um who can get a lot of leverage out of technology and just continue to churn away. Um yeah I I I I think just from my own experience and kind of seeing maybe some more antiquated industries, people I'm close with, like how, how they're approaching with technology and the differential, like they're not even technologists, like they, they can't program, but like they can use Airtable, yeah. Shopify and some of these other tools and, and seeing how much more like efficiency they get in their business as a yeah. result. 
like there's just still so much untapped part of the economy that that can benefit from that. And so I think I think you'll just see a lot of a lot of people just continue to churn away at it. The thing is, is that a it probably is not going to be venture backable, and it's also not necessarily sexy. Like pod- podcasting business is sexy because you're you're doing podcasting, which is cool. Um, if you're doing some industrial supply marketplace that like you know there are only thirty companies in the world that use it, but you now have a monopoly on that and you can make a lot of money on it, great. So. No. Uh, no, I'll, I'll concede it. It's not sexy in the, in the same way that building a you know venture back thing that raises a lot of money is sexy. But I think there's a whole generation of founders, me included, who have raised lot, lots of money, um, who realize that maybe that's like that works when things go really well, <laughs> but uh, most times things don't go really well, and there isn't as much um, optionality um, for for all types of founders. And actually, owning your own business. Uh, can give you a, a, a lot, a lot more optionality, and if you don't need to to fundraise, if you can self fund and have the luxury to, and for the types of businesses that I started or, or was a part of, you know, products on and on deck, probably didn't need a ton of capital. You know, I, I, I think we've in the last few years, um, we've we as an industry have learned the hard way that venture isn't the appropriate funding mechanism for every single type of business, um, and in fact, it's maybe for only like certain certain types of businesses you know, are, are most appropriate for venture ones that have a certain scale potential and then, you know, ones that have certain, um, you know, high fixed costs or up, upfront costs in order to, um, sort of realize that, that vision, but for content businesses, for community businesses, um, commerce businesses, um, you know, it's getting easier and easier to get these, get these off the ground, prove demand. And, um, yeah. Well, that's tying it all the way back. It's like, okay, so People love giving crypto crap about like creating money and financial stuff. But the big issue is the SEC's kind of like lack of clear guidance and the gray cloud that exists over crypto. And it's like, is this, you know, fundraising security or whatever? But there is actually like a lot of really interesting stuff in crypto that should there be a little bit more guidance and you can kind of know like, okay, this is regulated versus this is not, or how, how would you manage it? Like just think about a lot of those businesses that you just brought up. It's like, maybe they should be a DAO and like, or, or like here, here's an example that's non-crypto, but like you can easily facilitate with crypto co-op. Like you, you go to like your crunchy grocery store and you're like, Oh wow, this is like so great that the, uh, the workers own and participate. REI, the company, like it is a co-op. Like, so why can't we take that structure and stick it on the internet in an internet native way where if I'm an early customer to an up and coming brand, why, why shouldn't I have some upside in it? And, and maybe you cap it in terms of like how much they're able to invest or whatever. And you, you can solve for this stuff if you actually want to take an approach to say, Hey, we do want more financial innovation because financial innovation when it works, right? So financial innovation, when it's scammy, um, you know, just creates like a, all these tears and then everyone gets really mad and, and you have all this reactionary. But when it works, it, it like actually creates massive, massive consumer surplus, right? Like stock corporations, like they're, they're good. <laughs> we, we've all benefited from, if you've ever had any amount of equity compensation, like the joint stock corporation invented in Holland in you know the 17th century. Good thing. Like I'm glad we have it. But you also have the Mississippi company in in you know 
18th century France that bankrupted the country and probably was like one of the, the underlying causes to the French Revolution. So like, there's going to be some some good and the bad with with this stuff. Another basic example, and you can kind of go through the merits of this, but like mortgage-backed securities made the mortgage market that much more efficient, which decreased the the kind of like or lowered the barrier for people to get into the market. Maybe at a certain point it got too bad, too low, but 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 generally, like Americans have this incredibly powerful financial instrument that the government is involved in, but but overall it's the markets that exist in that that make it that much more accessible, right? And and so I think like financial market innovation, it doesn't come from Wall Street, like for the most part. Like they, they, they are very slow at it and they're increasingly regulated and little banks really don't do much of that. And so actually getting to a world where you actually have more innovation around financial markets, I, I think is probably good. And, and yes, people will lose money. But in, in the long run, the market will probably find new and interesting ways to, to kind of do capital formation around people who need capital. Um, yeah. And I think like, look, if you want to get like really historic, like, you know, if you look at the history, it's like capital formation is the like critical input into the rise of both the British Empire and then later like the US. It's like capital markets are critical in addition to like strong property rights in, in, in prosperity. So like we, we, we should be in the same way that we were looking for the cure for cancer, like, like new financial innovation is, is a good thing. Um, yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, um, crypto has both appealed to, um, people on the right and people on the left for, for different reasons. And I feel like the financial innovation part is specifically the part that says, Hey, when a company gets or you know product gets successful, it shouldn't just be employees who who reap the rewards. In addition to the owners, customers should also your users should also get upside. Like we should expand the pool of people who has upside, um, and it appeals to a certain left, you know, a person on the left who wants more uh, equality, um, wants more people to to benefit from it, but also is like you know rational enough to believe in markets and believe in capitalism and, and, and sort of like aligns there's sort of like both the, the side that cares about growth, um, and is smart enough to understand the importance of that, but also sort of the moral side of, Hey, I also want people to be included in, in that growth. And, um, that vision hasn't yet like come to pass in a, in a massive way, but, um, yeah, that's, that's the opportunity and, and, and appeals to that kind of person. Well, I mean, my friend, Jesse, Pollock, like we probably don't agree on a lot on the on like hardcore political side of things, but I think he approaches crypto from a this is actually a powerful new thing that we can include a lot more people in in the upside of things, and um, I think that that's right. Like that that to me is like showing it's a technology that is not so politicized. I think it's become a little bit more because of Elizabeth Warren um, and. Even AOC, who you know we talk about on the show, like she she doesn't have an explicit anti-crypto. I actually think back to how savvy she is. I think she realizes that younger people look at this on her side of the political spectrum and say, "Hey, this is a, a way for increasing my participation in the upside." Um, and so, you know, I don't think she's she's had a, like an outright negative. I mean, some of the scam stuff, fine, but. Uh, like as a technology category, I mean Elizabeth Warren said she was raising an anti-crypto army. Uh, yeah, like she she is anti-innovation, and 
the irony is the she's the one who created the CFPB, yet she's doing everything in her power, which probably means that there's, you know, you create the CFPB as a way to make sure that the banks start donating to you or to your super PAC or people you're affiliated with. I actually don't know like wh- what that is, but it's it strikes me as, you know, I'm going to truth power to the banks and then uh, you're trying to ban crypto. Um, but like Richie Torres in New York, um, and so he's he's in one of the poorest districts, you know, congressional districts in America. He, he's pro crypto. So I, I think it over the, the kind of next five to 10 years, it probably becomes a bipartisan thing. Yeah. And we're hopefully in a better place where we, we actually permit people to, to start innovating a little bit more and, and impact the real world use cases that like people can actually look at and hang around and say, this is actually pretty, pretty cool. Like this isn't just circular people speculating. Uh, I've always thought, or I always thought there was an opportunity for like some version of UBI to the extent that it existed to be tied to the S and P 500 so that like everyone is aligned. If you think of, you know, we've had over the last decade, this kind of like demonized billionaires rhetoric, because when Amazon does well, um, of course it impacts the whole economy, but most people don't see it in, in, in the same way as if they were just clearly getting richer. And so if, if UBI was tied to that, they would be getting richer and sort of all on the same, all on the same side. And, but crypto does it in more native ways, um, in theory. Um, and so that is, yeah, uh, I mean, look, I, I, I think that the easiest way to get more people to, I mean, the, the Democrats wouldn't do this because people wouldn't want to vote for them as much, um, is everyone when they're born, they get, they get a, you know, people have called it invest in America or just like, yeah, you your equivalent four hundred one k is stupid, right? Like, think about how dumb that is. Like, we have so if you're a government employee, you win a lottery. Like, you 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 get like the best retirement for literally working in in some. You know, there are some people who are actually doing like jobs that are in harm's way and really serving us. But for the most part, if you work at the DMV, like, why why should you have like better retirement than someone who's doing backbreaking labor labor in the private sector? That's crazy. Okay, so we we should we should. Not give municipal and, and you know federal employees better deals. Like everyone should basically get the same. Anything that they're giving the government employees, like that, should be the the standard American plan, which obviously you have to bring down because we can't afford to do all that, like over promise. And as a result, like you get rid of all the state ones, and it's like, great. Here's the America pension. You get to see your whole life what you're contributing into it. And maybe there is some component where there's a basic one that gets added before you start working. And as you get to working age, you are contributing some of your social security dollars. And whether it technically is actually going in or, or it's the promise, which you can get into, like, you know, it's actually not there because we're, we're, we're spending more than it's coming in. Um, but you should be able to see that that is growing in an account. You can't trade it. It's it's literally the S&P 500 or something that we all agree is like, this is the best representative index. Like there's basically no management fee on it. And as the US economy is growing, you feel like you're participating. And I think that would be, it would just take a lot of work to make that happen. And I think what would be challenging is you don't see any of the impact of that in a four-year term. So maybe it's like a second... If somehow you got a president to get reelected with like a lame landslide and they decided that, that was their signature thing on their way out, that would be tremendous because now all of a sudden every American would feel like as they contribute into the system and those entitlement 
dollars come back and they're reflected in an app that they could look at and they know that, okay, if the country is doing better, I'm going to be able to have a good um, so I, I, I think that would be great, but wouldn't happen because that would, that would, that would also make people be like, wait, like, what are we doing? Like, what, like, what are, what are our policies doing to grow the economy? Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. It's interesting to think about how, when new technologies come out, sometimes they're, they're hated by a group of people who's worried about their uses of it. But once they realize they can use that technology for their own ends, maybe they're, they get more excited about it. I have a specific one that we could, uh, we can move into because we're still going to talk about in the group chat. Please. <laughs> so one topic that people don't really like talking about is, is, uh, genetics and IQ. Yep. And we, we were trading things back and forth. Um, for those who haven't really got into this debate, there's a famous book in the 90s, uh, The Bell Curve, by uh, an academic named Charles Murray, and makes some claims in that book that different races have different propensity for IQ. And got canceled in the 90s for it, and kind of has been canceled since. And a couple of years ago, I think it was like 2018, Sam Harris, a uh, popular podcaster, Brought Charles Murray back into the scene and they did like a what, like multi-hour interview and talked about the book and all this kind of stuff. And then just generally around like genetics and intelligence. The other thing I think that there was a, like a catalyst for that is David Reich, who is, I think he's like a chair professor at, at Harvard in anthropology. I want to say it's like genetic anthropology or, or it, it's something where he, or, or archaeology, I think he, he, so he's, he's studying genetics across time and geographies. Um, and he has a really interesting book, um, Tyler Cowen, when, when I, I only discovered it, I'm not like really into this area. I was at Coinbase. Um, we just come off the like big growth year and we had a little bit more breathing room. And I remember I was reading Marginal Revolution and Tyler referred to this book as like one of the best books of the year, maybe one of the most important books of the decade or all that. And, and so I was like, okay, I should buy this. This is a fascinating book, um, who we are and how we got here. Uh, I think like more people should go read this book. Some technical sections, you can kind of like skip through it, but um, overall pretty cogent. And it kind of made me think like, oh, interesting. Like we have the story we tell ourselves around history and a bunch of different things. Like if you, if you just talk about like humans moved out of Africa and then they moved to kind of like, you know, the Fertile Crescent and then from there and like Neanderthals and all these other kind of like uh, related homo like species that uh, didn't, um, didn't make it. And so this is a fascinating book from a genetic standpoint. But, but around the time of that book, he wrote, uh, a New York Times op-ed that was um, genetics and race, but he also specifically was talking about intelligence without mentioning, or maybe he did, but like really not talking about Charles Murray. And this is a guy who's at Harvard, right? So he's very much in the in the kind of cathedral, like knows how to play the game. He's, he's not getting canceled. But he basically made a point where he said, hey, we don't want to talk about anything related to genetic heritability of intelligence, but we all talk about how you can inherit um, disease through your genetics. We talk about that you, you know, obviously basketball players that are tall, like we know that they're tall because of genetics. Like so, so there's like a whole bunch of stuff that we we acknowledge the genetics work. And then there's this like part of our body, like the brain. It's like, 
absolutely not. That has nothing to do with genetics. And his point is that it's kind of like this ostrich head in the sand because it's an uncomfortable topic and people have been canceled about it. We as a society are not going to deal with this. And his point in 2018 was there's a tidal wave coming. Like we're, we're really starting to, you know, to 20 years into the having sequenced human genome, like we're really starting to understand and like be able to map things and computers are getting better. Sequencing is getting cheaper. And we should start having these discussions because what's going to happen. And we've seen a little bit of this in China because there's this technology with, with DNA called CRISPR, which is you can kind of think of as like gene editing and be able to take things out of your genome. And I think there's a pretty famous case where a doctor in China, supposedly rogue, uh, what is it? I think it was like HIV or something where they edited the genes of some, some twins or something to, to, to remove or, or some type of genetic condition. And then he was disbarred because, you know, this is pre-COVID. It was like, oh no, like you, you're violating ethics and, and the Chinese kind of said, we've disappeared this guy, which I don't know if he actually has been disappeared. Maybe he's working in the lab, um, on, on making super babies in China. But, but the point is, is that not everyone is going to have the same set of ethics and morals and frankly, like inability to discuss hard topics that we have here in, in the U.S. and then in the West more generally. And so David is, you know, David Reich is, is basically saying, it's like, probably should just start actually trying to engage on this conversation rather than stick our head in the sand because we are going to get to a place pretty soon where that new technology is going to flip, right? CRISPR and the ability to like map out. And if you've ever seen the movie Gattaca, uh, which is a great movie, uh, worth watching to kind of like prime your mind on this. But what happens when now all of a sudden the Chinese are like, we've developed a technology that allows you to dial up the intelligence of people. And so you're going to watch so fast, watch it like in the next few years, it's going to go from intelligence is not related to genetics and absolutely not. We're not going to talk about this to we need equity for intelligence. And everyone who is genetically not as smart as other people, I would hope it would at least the argument would be we need to boost them. But I can imagine we're also going to, if you kind of think of the meme where people are getting down, is we might have to make you a little dumber genetically because that is not, not fair. And I know that sounds crazy, but like it, it is fascinating to me that we as a society are not even talking about this, yet that, that train, the genetic uh, editing train, is, is barreling ahead. Um, so I, I think it's a great example of where, like, I already know how the, that side of the, the kind of technology or, or science is going to flip. Believe science is going to go from, it doesn't exist to, we need to be using this, uh, immediately, uh, on everybody. Well, so. history, history rhymes. I mean, wasn't eugenics like a progressive or left-wing project, like, you know, hundred yeah, years ago? Remember that that racism was originally a progressive organization, Planned Parenthood, right? Because it was we need to actually make sure that less desirable um, mothers don't have kids. Yeah, and so if you actually type in like racism, Planned Parenthood, it's in their about page, and they like they do like kind of almost like a land acknowledgement of yes, we're doing good today, even though we were originally were started as a eugenics organization. Um, I am sorry. I think it's worth poking at people who, who are kind of like holier. Right. Like, and and eugenics got a really bad name, obviously. Yeah. Basically, no one 
be before 1930, like history is just like completely non-existent for most people. Um, is that like you start digging into the twenties and they're just like, Whoa. yeah. And it, it got a really bad name after, obviously during or after world war two in terms of what happened with, with Germany, such that people have been so scared since, um, yeah. But, but, but Tyler, uh, Cohen, uh, Cohen would, would point out the, you know, kind of averages over is we're already doing this. It's just, it's just, it's implicit. It's, it's just kind of the way we do it is you have no genetic mixing between certain socioeconomic classes, like a little bit. Some people make it out, but for the most part, it's like you're a coastal elite. Like you're only hanging out with other coastal elites. You're almost certainly getting married to another coastal elite. And like extrapolate that out over a few generations, and like you're you're you know, yeah, Charles Murray has a book called Coming Apart, which makes that exact case. It's a fascinating, yeah, book. Um, everyone's a eugenicist if they're deliberate about who they're who they're marrying um, or having kids with, the um, or if they're trying to. You know, find... By the way, there's like an argument that that is it's not a judgment as much as, and obviously to use the term, like people would freak out, but. It, it's pretty cultural, right? There are a lot of cultures around the world. It's like, I, I don't want you marrying someone outside of our culture. Like, it's like, <laughs> that is, um, and I think it is like, you know, PMC coastal elites were like, oh, that's not, it's not PC or, you know, like I should be able to marry anyone I want. But like, if we actually want to talk about the like predominant way humans operate both like globally today, as well as historically, not to say that it's, it's right, but it's like, no, you marry someone from our culture. <laughs> like that, 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 that's, that's how the kind of like tribe has, you know, uh, proliferated and, and continued through history. Yeah. I mean, this is perfect honor for Antonio. Like, I mean, he's, he should be here. Yeah. The, uh, he just texted us saying he, he, just, he just got back, but we'll, uh, we'll wrap this in, in a few minutes because I know it's late for you. One thing I, I will say, I mean, the Charles Murray thing is so fascinating because so one, so Sam Harris had him on and then Ezra Klein took Sam Harris to task they had this podcast that you know Sam Harris and Ezra Klein are both you know uh, brilliant. They've both been on Turpentine uh, shows um, upstream. You, you, people should listen. But they also you know uh, were a little petulant with, with each other. They, they got in sort of this you know big drama. Um, and um, the Charles Murray basically you know the, he mentioned that uh, sort of the controversial part. That's like one part a small part of one book and he wrote dozens of books all on different, he's like a social scientist, you know, on all different types of topics, but really, you know, got well known in a bad way for that specific book, it, you know, well late in, into his career. And he's kind of decided to almost double down on like speaking the, the or writing what he thinks is true, even if it's controversial because he doesn't have much to lose. So he wrote a book uh, a few years ago, maybe like, you know, 20 years after the bell curve, which kind of says, makes the argument that, hey, because we're not honest about these differences, we are getting ourselves into trouble because we notice disparities in outcomes between groups and we assign it all to prejudice. Um, and you can try to get rid of the prejudice, but you'll never get rid of the disparities, basically. And so if we were having more honest conversations, we would put less pressure on gov you know, government to socially engineer these outcomes that are that are the equality of outcomes that are never going to happen and having all these sorts of crazy side effects now thomas soul is a intellectual who doesn't use genetics a ton he he refers to culture 
uh, and he, he says that the disparity in groups can be explained by culture. And, and one thing he, he kind of stresses is that you should expect disparities in groups. Like there's, there's no reason why Russian people or French people or, you know, Italian people should have the same outcome. Like it's, it's crazy to imagine like the default is people, groups have different outcomes. And, and so then it's worth studying why do groups have different outcomes? And you could imagine a world as, as you know, our friend likes to say on earth too, where people look at, at the groups that are succeeding. And if we just like study them instead of like, um, you know, uh, make them embarrassed about it or guilty about it or, or um, like what we can do about human achievement. And so the question as to why groups have different outcomes or people have different outcomes is, is actually pretty important if you want to study hu human, uh, human achievement or, or if, if you want to uh, take what works for certain people and, um, and bring it to everybody else as opposed to just assume that it's all environmental I, or all a factor of, of prejudice. And if we got rid of a certain prejudice, then everyone would be rising up in, in, in the same way. So, so that's why Murray or other people say, actually, these conversations that can't be had, maybe they're pretty important. Now, Coleman Hughes says, hey, if it's, uh, he did Charles Murray's podcast and he said, hey, if it is really mostly genetic argument, why even say that? Because that's out of people's control. And so that's why I, I like that Thomas Sowell, or it's out of people's control for now. Now, maybe that'll change in a few years. But I like that Thomas Sowell makes it a lot about culture because culture seems more changeable. It's, it's definitely partly culture. And culture seems like something that, that people can, can change. I mean, obviously, this is such a complex topic. Like, we should probably do another episode on it. But yeah, it, like, here's a couple of like counters, though, that I think that like, it is people don't like things that may, would make them uncomfortable, right? Like, and I, do, do I know whether this exists or like how much? No, like I am not like, I think, so So it's worth reading. If you just type Charles Murray, Ezra Klein, Sam Harris, there's a Vox article and like Ezra wrote this long. Ezra Skate. Actually, it's like, I think it's a useful, it's like a summer, summary of the argument. It's obviously from a left-leaning perspective. And I think like you should just be able to read it and make your own opinion on like, okay, like what do I think here? There are a bunch of links. You can kind of like get up to speed. I think this is actually, this is an amazing litmus test for your ability to like hold multiple thoughts in your head and like independent thinking. Like if I had to give like an independent thinking, you'd be like, read this scenario, click through as many of the links, and I want you to come back and give me a nuanced point of view. And if you have like New York Times brain, like you just can't, you, you just like can't deal with it. Um, and obviously if you're like a natural racist, like you're probably not also going to deal with it well, but like, here, here's a couple of things. Like, so I, the, the culture argument that Thomas Sowell makes, and I, I'm as big of a Thomas Sowell fan as anyone, right? So does the culture argument hold, if I want to be in the MBA, is culture the reason I'm going to be able to get there? Maybe, like, maybe I can kind of be like short and not that athletic and like i can just really train jj i mean that's that's actually the name jj reddick credit <laughs> he's really he's tall and he's athletic but like i'm going to be a three-point specialist or who, who's that guy on um uh duncan whatever on the heat or like you just, you yeah, just duncan robinson yeah. right so it's just like i'm going to be that guy right yeah. but but like Culture doesn't like just like you can't like will yourself to be LeBron. I'm, I'm sorry. I got a certain. No, I, I, I tried. I tried. It didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> not, only, not only did you try to be an NBA player, you tried to be a rapper. And neither. Yeah, no. I, I was really going against my. Yeah, I was all about culture. <laughs> my, my point is, is that like, OK, so we have examples of things where the 
heritability of certain traits. Like, I don't think anyone is arguing with that. And like, clearly is, an, is a factor in, in that specific problem. Okay. So just hold that in. So if, if we start to acknowledge that, then it's just like, okay, well, that, that, that's a case, but, but no, nothing else. And then like, you give another example and then it's, it's, it's just, so then you run into this thing where it's like, okay. So now we have a whole bunch of instances where things are heritable, but the other ones are not. Right. And so I, I think it's just like, People just don't want to talk about uncomfortable things. And there's not a ton of incentive, right? To your point, it's like Charles Murray's canceled the rest of his academic career. But I think like what's interesting is David Reich is, is a great example of someone who he is playing within the bounds of the game. He has not been canceled. I mean, he's as, you know, PMC cathedral as it gets, but he is pushing the boundaries to say, Hey, these are things that we society should confront. Because doing the head in the sand ostrich stuff is probably not productive, right? And and I and I think I would say like the last thing I would say is like, okay, so prejudice, and when like people get upset about like, oh well, the prejudice or this or that, it's like, are are we memory holding like Jewish people haven't had any prejudice in their entire history? Yet, like if you look at the percentage of Nobel Prize winners, like what percentage of them are Ashkenazi Jewish people who, by the way, they, they, they murdered like a, a large percentage of them. And, and, and so like, what, what, like, how, how are you even intellectually consistent if we're just any, anytime you try to go any bit one way and then you just like immediately take out the like prejudice or discrimination words, it's like, no, like there are other groups of people who've had that and they, they seem to still also thrive. And so that's not meant to be like any coded of like, oh, this or that. It's, it's more about like, to the David Wright point, it's like, we should have those hard conversations. Otherwise, we're going to get hit with a freight train at some point when the technology exists, and then it's just going to be pending. Um, so, so what I would say as a kind of like closing note is like, you should just go read that as recline place because it's the jumping off point for this whole argument. And, and you can kind of see, I would recommend the David Wright book. I'd recommend reading some of the stuff he, he tends to put stuff in the New York Times when they've had new stuff. It's actually just interesting. It has nothing to do with uh, the intelligence thing. It's, it's much more actually about like where did people come from. There's like this whole controversial chapter on India that basically like I think the book was like banned in India because obviously talks about migrations of people within India. But like you should just and he worked with a team of people from India to try to like not be canceled about it. But like it is it is an interesting topic that is only going to become more prevalent as we understand more on the genetic side of things. And I, I like predict that this will be a major culture war issue. Totally. Uh, with ten years. Yeah, I think it's a, a broader question, maybe for yeah, for another time, of like, what are some truths that we're gonna have to face, and we should face them sooner, and what are other ones that actually um, they're just too disruptive, and it's better to just have a myth myth around it. To that point, uh, we should just like point out the French have decided as a society that paternity tests, even though they exist, we are not going to do. It is too disruptive to our society. But no one is saying that the paternity test science doesn't exist. It is saying that like we collectively have decided that this would be too disruptive to our way of life. That that to me is like that, that that is like confronting the reality of something and then saying this is how we want our society to be. Yeah, I'd be so paranoid. I like <laughs> what because they just they don't they don't want people to realize that people are raising aren't raising their kids, basically. Yeah. Right. But but like we we could as a society be like yeah it sounds like 
in, in intelligence, just like every other part of your, your yeah. DNA or your being, um, has some genetic component to it. We don't actually know quite how much. We're going to try to learn more because maybe there are ways you can improve it for everybody. Like we can make a magic pill that makes everyone smarter. And to use uh, Mark's Mark's point is like AIs will make us smarter. It's like great. Everyone should have a super intelligence. If you, if you don't necessarily genetically, get it augmented, right? Yeah, full, full full circle. We should we should own it as we were saying. Maybe, maybe let's wrap on that. Balaji just said he wants to join, but uh, we're an hour and a half in, so maybe we'll let him in uh, next time. Um, yeah, well, tease tease it for the fans. <laughs> exactly. Um, harass Antonio on the comments. Like, just yes. make sure you're telling him that he should be on the show. Well, not not only the comments. Uh, DM him. Uh, yeah, <laughs> DM him. Say that. Uh, yeah, send memes. Like this is this is what we're hoping from the fans. Yeah, exactly. That's great. Um, All right, let's wrap on that. Hey, everyone. Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together.